So my name is Andrew Nilsson. I'm a ministry intern here at Charles River Church. And I just ask that you join me in prayer as we get ready to open the Word of God this morning. Sovereign God, we thank you that we just have the privilege and the opportunity to gather here this morning and again open your word to read in your gospel about who you are, what you've done. I do pray, Lord, and I do ask, Lord, for you to be here in our midst this morning, working in our hearts, changing our hearts, and causing us to be different than what we walked in here this morning. So, Lord, I do pray and I do ask for your spirit to move here. And, Lord, push me aside and just speak through me this morning. May you receive all the glory and the honor this morning. We pray this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, again, welcome. Thank you for coming here this morning. Um, If you're new with us, we are really glad to see you. I know I met a few new faces this morning. And as I said, I'm super honored to be up here and opening the Word of God with you this morning. Um, Can anyone else believe it's almost August? I was thinking about that just yesterday. It is almost August. Some of our members are definitely taking advantage of that. As you can tell, we're a little bit smaller this morning. But we're happy that we get to enjoy this season of summer, especially after a winter that we had. Some of you parents might be excited because it's nearing that time of season where the kids go back and you get to reclaim your own home. We're going to jump into the text this morning, and we have a very interesting text this morning. Very interesting. It's Luke chapter 11. Jesus casts out a demon. And I just want to map this out before you. Uh, Before we start, I want to map it out so you kind of know where we're headed. The first section, we're going to see how people just are missing the point with Jesus. They're not quite getting it. And then Jesus brings back this laser focus by talking about the sign of Jonah. So that's going to be the second part. We're going to talk about what the sign of Jonah is. And thirdly, we're going to learn that behold, something greater is here. So for those of you who don't like spoilers, I'm sorry. We're going to start at the end today, and I'm going to read verse 32 for you guys. I don't know if that's going to come up on the screen. Hopefully it is. But we're in chapter 11 of Luke, verse 32. This is what the Word of God says. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater is here. Behold, something greater is here. Isn't that basically the underlying philosophy of every marketing campaign out there? Behold, something greater is here. As I was thinking about that underlying philosophy, I thought about the the iPhone and the Android. Because every commercial, they are basically saying, behold, something greater is here is here. Doesn't matter if they're talking about the competition or if they're talking about just the last phone they put out. They always have that underlying philosophy, behold, the next big thing is here. But honestly, are we really that different? Some of us might be too young to remember this, but I remember this. 
There used to be a day where we had a cord keeping us to the wall. But are we really that different? Because honestly, I walk around, I see people plugged into a wall because their battery's running out. And they're talking on their phone, texting on their phone, plugged into a wall. Behold, something greater is here. So before I cause any divisions between the Apple and the uh, Android debate, let's move on to our actual text. Let me read for you verses 14 through 23 of our text in Luke chapter 11. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his palace, his goods are safe. But when the stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he was trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to the house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. So we have a very interesting scene going on here. Here's Jesus casting out demons, and there's a dialogue that happens between these folks who are watching and Jesus himself. Now, we don't know much about the demon or the man who was possessed, but we do know that it was mute. The demon itself was mute. And this is very interesting, because when we look at other demons in the Gospels, they're yelling at Jesus they're crying out for mercy so that they, they won't be harmed. They're causing people to fall and thrash on the grounds. I mean, it wouldn't be that hard for someone to walk by and be like, yeah, something's not right. That dude is not right in the head. But this demon was mute. But we don't know if this man had this demon his whole life. Can you imagine if you had the ability to talk and all of a sudden became possessed? So in your mind, you knew you could talk, but yet were unable to do so? The turmoil inside of not being able to say what is wrong with you. Imagine going to a doctor, but being unable to tell him what's wrong with you. But see, Jesus is a good physician. He does the diagnosis, the prognosis, the whole kit and caboodle. Jesus knew there was a demon in this man, and he cast him out. 
And the people marveled. They marveled over what Jesus had just done. But they brought some serious accusations, some very serious accusations. By Beelzebul, he drives out demons. It's the prince of demons who's doing this. That's why he's able to command them to do whatever he wants them to do. But Jesus goes on to explain the flaw in their thinking. Read with me in verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I do cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? The hearts of these individuals who watched this miracle were so ready to view Jesus and identify Jesus as something other than he was. And I have to ask us this morning, are we not so often guilty of trying to do the same thing, to push Jesus into a corner and to identify him as something that he actually is not? We might not be so bold to say that Jesus is the prince of demons, but how often do we say in our head or here in the culture, Jesus was just merely a man or some good moral teacher? just a good example for us to follow. Let me quote to you from C.S. Lewis because I think he brings this to a T. I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing people so often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with this patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that option up up to us, and he did not intend to. C.S. Lewis's point jives directly with what Jesus is saying here. Did you notice that Jesus didn't say, no, I'm not visible? He didn't. But rather, what did he do? If you call me visible, fine. But here's the error with that if you choose to call me that. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And by the way, if I'm casting out demons by visible, How about the people, your people, who cast out demons? How do they do it? He says they will be your judges. 
Because Jesus knew the people would not be prepared to say that their own were casting him out by the prince of demons. So he, all, he didn't say no. All he did was explain the error and their thinking. And Jesus responds in verse 20 and says, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus provides a polarizing opposite. A polarizing opposite. If it is not by Satan, then it's by the finger of God himself and his kingdom is here. You might not want to get this one wrong. This isn't one of those questions you want to screw up because there's not middle ground. It's the prince of demons or it is God himself who is bringing the kingdom. See, if we misunderstand Jesus' identity, we're going to misunderstand his message. He provides these two very different options, Beelzebul or God. He removes the middle ground. He doesn't want us to call him a good moral teacher. It's Satan or God. And oh, by the way, this is why it's not Satan. Verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Man, Jesus just gets more and more polarized. You're with me, you're against me. The in-between is not an option Jesus has given us. If we misunderstand his identity, we're going to misunderstand the message that he has brought. Have you ever been listening to someone as they continue to discuss um, a topic and and they're just you know, talking about this idea, and inside, you kind of have this, this feeling in you that wants to boil up and say, I agree. I agree with what you're saying. Amongst Christians, you know, people say, amen. Can I get an amen? Can I get an amen? There's this thing that boils up inside of us when we agree with somebody that we just want to say, yes, I agree. And it's exactly what we see happen in this story. There's this woman who's in the crowd. And let me read it to you real quick here uh, in verse 27. And he said these things, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So this woman, she's having this feeling, and it's just boiling up, it's boiling up, and then she explodes, and she's basically saying, blessed is Mary. What? Seriously? Jesus provides this powerful explanation that he's carrying out God's work, that the kingdom of God is here, And she explodes to bless Mary? Let me get, let me set something straight though. She's absolutely right that someone deserves praise. That feeling that boils up, that's what worship is. 
Worship is a response in our hearts of something that we've just seen or heard that we're in awe of. So she was right that she wanted to, she wanted to bless, she wanted to, to worship, she wanted to magnify the fact that Jesus just gave this powerful explanation. But why did she do this? Why did she bless Mary? Just like those who called him visible, I think she misunderstood Jesus' identity. If Jesus were just a man, then it would make total sense to praise Mary. Don't we do that every day in our lives? You've raised such a fine young man. You've raised such a fine young lady. She's going to make a great CEO someday. We always are praising the parents, and it's right because those people actually had an influence there. She praises Mary, I think, because she thinks Jesus is just a man, so his mother is worthy of some kind of honor. Now, the scriptures themselves do tell us that Mary is a blessed woman. But some of us here this morning in our midst may have been brought up and taught to venerate Mary or to even pray to her. You may have even been taught that she is a mediator between us and God. But how does Jesus respond? He steers this woman away from her misunderstanding and he points away from Mary. She basically says, blessed is Mary. But Jesus responds, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. We don't need Mary as a mediator. We have the word of God, first and foremost in Christ himself, but also recorded for us in the physical word that we carry today. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus himself. See, just like those who called Jesus visible, just like the woman who made the error in thinking it was Mary who deserved praise, if we fundamentally misunderstand the identity of Jesus as Lord, Savior, and God, we are going to misinterpret and misunderstand his message. And I think that's why Jesus responded with the sign of Jonah. Verse 16. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So now we're in the second part of the passage. We're talking about the sign of Jonah, or we're leading up to it. And notice that Jesus, in that first part, he never addressed those people who were asking for a sign. He first decided to address those who were talking about Beelzebul. But now we're moving to the part where he wants to address those who said, I want a sign from heaven. I want a sign. Verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, 
he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater is here. We talked about if we misunderstand his identity, we're going to misunderstand his message. But now I want to say Jesus is not here for show. Jesus is here for salvation. And there's a big difference. When you're asking for a sign, you're asking for a show. But Jesus isn't here for show. He's here for salvation. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of us have ever said, oh, how I would like a sign from God? If you're anything like me, that temptation comes at every major decision in our life, including the choice between cornbread and blueberry bread. <laughs> if I had a dime for every time I was sitting with a group of Christians, and there, someone in, the, in, in that group was just talking about this huge decision, you know, should I date this person? Should I not date this person? Should I, should I do this job or that job? I just, I wish God would give me a sign. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Now, is it wrong to ask God for guidance or help or discernment? Not at all. Not at all. But as I thought about how Jesus said, no sign will be given to it, I started discerning in my own heart. And as I talked with others, that asking for a sign is a bit different than asking for guidance. When we ask for sign, we want some kind of irrefutable proof. We want something to just pop up and be like, oh, can't deny that. I'm supposed to take that job. I am not asking for guidance at that point. At that point, I'm asking for God to do all the work. Am I not? Am I not saying, God, I am incapable of making this decision. Make it for me. I want to suggest, not in all cases, but in some cases, is that a form of spiritual laziness? God has given us his word to discern our lives. And here we are, we're asking for signs. Just show me what is right. But when we're doing that, are we acting in faith or in fear? Asking for a sign doesn't require a whole lot of faith because a sign gives us the answer. And we know that it is impossible without faith to please God, as it says in Hebrews 11.6. Will God give us direction through circumstances in our lives? Yes. But the primary mode of discerning is by Jesus' words. And it's precisely why he said in verse 28, blessed or blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. 
And man, sometimes I read the Bible and I'm just like, man, Jesus knew exactly where he was going. It's really every time, but this time just really stuck out to me. He knew exactly where he was going. Blessed to hear the words of God and keep it. Now he's going to talk about Jonah. Verse 29, let me read it for you again. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. What? You know, it said the crowds were increasing. I can imagine there were a few people who were coming up to the scene at that point, and they heard those exact words as soon as they show up, and they're like, oh, we found the wrong preacher. (laughs) Let's go find the next one. This is not a way to increase followers. To call those who are following you evil? If you're really bold, go and try that on Twitter this afternoon. Actually, don't go do that. That might, that might cause some headache. It's not a way to increase followers. This is precisely why when somebody, specifically politicians, are asked a question, you ever watch those politicians on the news and they're asked a question? And you start listening to, the, to, to their answer, and by the end of it, you totally forget what the question is because they didn't answer it? Here's the question, and they just circumnavigate the question. Because they don't want to lose any followers. They don't want to offend anybody. But has anyone been watching the news lately? There's a guy out there who's a little bold. On the native of uh, Donald Trump, some of you might know him. Unlike traditional politicians, for some reason, Trump is not afraid to offend people. Trump is actually speaking his mind, even if his mind, let's just say, isn't quite politically correct or something that I would agree with. I don't even know if I would agree with him in the slightest. But in the same way, Jesus is actually speaking his mind because he is not afraid to offend. However, unlike Trump, he's not offending because he's mm, out there. He's offending people because he's speaking truth. You know what the thing is with truth? Truth removes neutrality. As soon as truth is introduced, you can't stand here. You've got to make a decision. And Jesus says that no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. And I think the underlying point is, as I said, Jesus is not here for show. He is here for salvation. So to understand what Jesus is trying to say about the sign of Jonah, we got to understand the story of Jonah. But let me make a quick apologetic point here. It may be very tempting for any of us here today to look at the story of Jonah, be like, That must just be a parable. That must just be a story they told to explain a greater truth. That didn't actually happen. There's no way some guy was swallowed by a fish and lived for three days and three nights and then was spit up. I can't accept that. But if we accept the words of Jesus, I would argue we have to accept Jonah as a historical event. The reason being... Jesus said the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and condemn this generation. 
As Christians, we believe that the judgment is a real historical event yet to come. And guess who's going to be there? The men of Nineveh. If it was just a parable, Jesus would never have brought fictional people into a real event that will happen. I could give you many other reasons for why we should trust Jonah, but I don't have that much time. So what is the story of Jonah? The story of Jonah goes like this. God comes to Jonah and says, Go and preach against the Ninevites. Their wickedness has come up to me, and I'm asking you to go and preach. And what does Jonah do? He runs the other way. Runs the other way. And in that, the beginning of that book, we're not actually given a motive for why he ran. But he jumps on a boat, he's headed to another city, and a storm comes up. The people are freaking out. They're praying to every god imaginable. They ask Jonah, like, pray to your god. The storm's not doing anything. It's just getting worse and worse. Finally, they say, who is your god? See, he's the creator of heavens and earth. He created the sea. He created the storm. And oh, by the way, I'm the reason to blame for the storm. So they talk about it over. They cast him overboard. And God provides this fish that swallows Jonah. And he's in there for three days and three nights. And Jonah repents. He, turn, he says, Lord, I have sinned against you. I have not done what I'm supposed to. And he repents. And the, it says the Lord commanded the fish to spit him up. Thankfully on shore. And he's, the word of the Lord comes to him again and says, Jonah, will you go and preach against the Ninevites? So he goes. He preaches. And by some miracle of God... One of the greatest repentance events in probably all of the Bible happens on a dime. They change. They just say, you're right. We've sinned. Even the royalty commands that the whole city must repent and change. They even talk about what the animals must do. This was a serious repentance. And Jonah leaves moping around because he finally reveals why he didn't want to go. It was not because he was afraid of his enemies, which the Ninevites happened to be one of Israel's enemies. It was because he said, Lord, this is why I didn't want to go. I knew that you were a great and compassionate God and that you would have mercy. Wow! He didn't want to go because he didn't want them to be saved. He didn't want them to repent. Man, that's got to be hatred of a different kind. Or maybe it's of a very familiar kind. He didn't want the people to repent. So now that I've summarized the story of Jonah, let me just make the case to you. I think the story of Jonah is just about, as much about Jonah's repentance, if not more, than it is about the city of Nineveh. Jesus is bringing this whole thing to a head. They're misunderstanding his identity. They're asking for signs, and he says, no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. No sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus is not here for show. He's here for salvation. So now I want to address you guys. Because metaphorically speaking, there are two types of people in this room. 
There's Ninevites. And there's Jonah's. I want to first address the Ninevites in the room. If you are here this morning and you have yet to place your faith in Jesus Christ, then you are not that much different than a Ninevite. If you are out there waiting for Jesus to just give you a sign from heaven to place faith in him, here's your sign. It's right here. Jesus said that sign's probably not going to come. Here's your sign. It's right here. Again, verses 29 and 30. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be to this generation. When Jonah showed up in Nineveh, he didn't come with miracles. He didn't come with healings. He didn't come with signs and wonders. He came with the Word of God. He said, your wickedness is great. Repent and turn towards the Lord, and He shall forgive you. And guess what? They listened. They turned from themselves and from their sin, and they surrendered their hearts unto God. Jonah was a sign to the people of Nineveh, just as Jesus is a sign to us, because Jesus brought the exact same message. Repent and believe, and you shall be saved. And guess what? Unlike Jonah, he did bring a bunch of miracles. He did bring a lot of proof, backing him up. Romans 10.9 Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. There it is again. You understand His identity. You understand His message. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, when you understand His identity, you can understand His message about salvation and then you can embrace it together. you've yet to believe in Jesus Christ and you recognize that you too need to turn towards the Lord, turn. Turn this morning. Turn right now. Confess that you need a Lord and Savior. His name is Jesus. But now, for those of us in the room who are Jonas, let me address us. If you are here this morning and you consider yourself to be part of the family of God and you have placed saving faith in Jesus Christ, you're not that much different from Jonah. Abraham, right, gets this huge promise from God. He says, guess what? You are going to be the father of many. You're going to be this great nation and I'm going to bless you. This comes in uh, Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to bless you so that you can bless others. It is a blessing so that they can be a blessing. It is the gospel in its essence. He says, I'm going to bless you and the nation of Israel so that you can bless everyone on earth. One of Israel's chief sins was that across history, they struggled to be a blessing to the nations. 
they often became so inwardly focused and concerned with their own holiness and being God's chosen people that they were reluctant to be a blessing to others. And Jonah is a chief example of this. This blessing is for the chosen people of God, not our enemies. The salvation is for us, the people of God, not, not the Ninevites. Oh, church, Charles River family, are we in need of repentance too? Have we ran from people who need salvation because we're too concerned with our own holiness? Are we hating somebody so much that we are refusing to share God's salvation with them? Are we simply too afraid to share our faith because we're afraid of what people might think? This mustn't be. Jonah's in the room, family of God, Charles River Church. I am a Jonah at times. Will you repent with me? Because like Jonah, God still has people for us to share his word with. Boston is full of people who, like the Ninevites, they just need to know where to turn. They don't know. So we must go. Will we repent today? Will we turn to the Lord? Maybe this is the first time that you're ready to give your life to Christ. Maybe you, like Jonah, need to repent and push forward in the message of God and sharing with others. And I believe we have great confidence to do that. Because behold, something greater is here. Verse 32, the final verse of this section. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up with this generation. Will they condemn us? Will they have anything to say about Charles River Church? What will they say? Behold, something greater is here. The only reason we would be condemned is because we have something greater to reject. They could have rejected the prophet Jonah, but they didn't. We could reject Jesus, the Son of God. Will we? You see, Jonah, although a foreshadowing of Christ, he sinned. He did not obey the word of God which told him to go. And that is why he had to repent and be given a second chance. But behold, something greater is here. He is not here for show. He is here for salvation. Jesus didn't need a second chance. He obeyed wholeheartedly to the Father. He was perfect. There was no need to repent. Yet on the cross, the sinless Jesus took all of our sin so that all who confess and believe might be saved. And behold, something greater is here. Not only is he greater because he was perfect, not only is he greater because he paid the price for us, but behold, something greater is here. Jonah may have been in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, but that was his own doing. Jesus went into the pit of death for three days and three nights. And it was our doing. 
not his. He willingly submitted so that he could pay the price so that we may live free. And guess what? On that third day, he rose again. And he offers the same hope of resurrection to all of us. Pray with me. Gracious God, this is an interesting text for us to follow on today because it does not provide a whole bunch of neutral options to us. It says that you are Lord and Savior, or you're visible. Well, we believe you to be Lord and Savior. We believe that you are Christ, the Messiah, who came and died and bled for our sake. You took our sins so that we may be healed. And Lord, I do pray for anyone here in the audience who, who this may be their first day today, who they are ready to say yes to Jesus, yes to his forgiveness, that they may turn like the Ninevites. And Lord, I just pray that you would be there changing and molding their heart in this very moment, bringing them to your true identity so we can understand your true message, that you're not here for show, but you're here for salvation. And Lord, I pray for those of us here who, who are believers, who are followers of you, Lord, let us come to repentance for every moment that we choose not to share your salvation. Set us ablaze that we may shine brightly for your glory and for your kingdom. Oh, Father, use Charles River Church to be a light unto Boston. We thank you, Lord. We praise you, Lord. And we give this all to you in the merciful Son of God's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.